such a bop it's catalina crunch damn it it's friggin it's nutritious oh delicious <laughs> marketed not to kids no exactly it's not tricks right that's true reese's pieces did you guys have those down here oh yeah fuck yeah reese's pieces dude. all right all right but you don't have ketchup chips it's interesting i've, I've seen some ketchup chips floating around all right what are we talking about today uh well I got to start. Dave, I'm sorry for last week, dude. <laughs> yeah. What it's, okay. it's okay. I'm okay. And I'll, I'm going to, here's what I'm going to, I'm going to make a commitment to you today. What's that? One, we're going to keep it a little lighter today I'll, compared I'll, to last I'll week. Believe it when I see it. Okay. <laughs> okay. We're going to keep it a little lighter. Two, I'm going to keep the clips punchier. I went a little long on the clips last week. They were a tad too long for how I want to have maybe one or two long clips. I had a lot of long clips and a lot of clips last week. And Dave did a lot of listening and he did a lot of learning and he steamed and we, but you got through it. I got through it. And you're educated. And so I want to keep it lighter what for there? you. <laughs> Jesus. I'm punching, punching shit. Punching things behind me. Four lines banging. He's yeah. nervous, guys. Yeah, yeah, he's get it. I'm he's, breathing he's, all. We got to have four lines banging. He's out, he's out there. Bodies all night long. Four lines. Four lines. Four lines. And I promise we will, we get, we will get to something. But I, I had a, I don't know why I want to talk about this, but I'm gonna. I got a, a new upgrade in my life that I'd, I'd like to test to testify about, and that is a. I got, I got something called a tushy. You know what this is? Mm. It's not the porn site, Dave. I've Chill seen, out. I've seen I've all seen you people listening out there that thought I was talking about porn. How dare you? <laughs> now, your counter might be, how do you know Brooks? And I'd be like, touche. But I got a tushy, and it goes on your toilet. And it's essentially, it's a bidet for, your, for the average common folk. Yeah, I mean, take out the essentially. It's, it's, it's a bidet it's for a the bidet. common folk. Yeah. And it's a great product, but here's what I learned. All right, listen, I spent a lot of years in the fitness game, Dave. I've lifted a lot of weights, Mike DeSchwartz. And what's something that could happen that's not a huge disruption to your health, but it's pretty common when you lift heavy weights and you don't know how to hold tension in your body. You can sometimes, what do you call them, Dave? You know what I'm saying? You can get, yeah, get the... Yeah, you yeah. know... Uh, yeah. It's a little shark. <laughs> Some lumps and bumps down in your, in your tush area that just get a little inflamed from time to time. They don't feel so good. No fun. The tushy, dude. It's first of all, since the water here is cold right now, it's a cold. It's a cold shower for my for my <laughs> undercarriage. Okay, which is great. What are the values of what are the values of cold showers, Dave? I mean, you know, I guess it's the opposite of them talking about getting sun on your genitals, right? And uh, cold, but cold is cold is great. Cold showers are going to wake you up in the morning. That's and for sure. What I've noticed is that every time I sit down to have myself, uh, you know, a nice little bowel movement, I get the tushies, you know, the the cold water, in, and I feel great. I feel great. <laughs> Best part of waking up, guys. So if did, I feel a little excited today, the tushy has me feeling electric did you, from the root chakra up. Did you just, did you just hack cold tubs and 
I might have cold baths and cold showers. Dude, in they general. do enemas. There's all lots of people that are that assholes. are using that entry point for lots of health reasons. <laughs> I think the tushy cold water is Just as good a use of it as any. And you use way less toilet paper. And I, I've just felt great about it. So Saving the planet over here. I, you know, it's the least I could do, really. I do this show, and I, and I, and I use my tushy to save the planet. How about no, Scott? <laughs> no. Okay. I don't know about that. Okay. So, well, in the first episode, we're still doing our pre... This isn't a pre-launch. Uh, we're not doing a pre-season, but we're doing four shows to give you a nice little spectrum of the types of things that we're going to talk about on the show. And so today, I want to tackle a topic that is in our wheelhouse. It has to do with words. And it also is linked to the other topics that we've discussed. We're just going to talk about it a little bit differently. And the word of the day is fat phobia. <laughs> Dude. I'm going to make a very unpopular <laughs> day. The word. Oh, man. <laughs> going to be a good one. The word of the day is fat phobia. And I'm going to make an uh, I'm going to make a case for an unpopular opinion that we You're should be that we should be You're too fat. <laughs> You're too fat. <laughs> that we should be fat phobic, but not for the reasons not for the reasons that you might imagine, okay? I'm going to make the case that we should be fat phobic, but not for the reasons that someone would want to yell at me on the other side of this when they're hearing it, okay? So we got to set it up. Here's what I want to say about this, is that all I want to do is highlight the talking points that are the mainstream talking points, and I want to dissect them to the best of my ability, and I want to present you with an opportunity to jump, you know, to speak into some of these things, okay? So let's start with the first clip to set up, uh, let's just say, the counter-narrative of, of our show, Smarter in seconds, fat phobia. Fat phobia is hatred, fear, and discrimination against fat people. It is also a fear of gaining weight and fatness itself. Fat phobia results in the isolation and erasure of fat people. Diet culture, unhealthy relationships with food. Harmful beauty standards, workplace discrimination, and medical discrimination. Fat phobia is the problem. Fatness is not. Smarter in seconds. <laughs> Can we just first start with the fact that they called their little bit smarter in seconds and they, they said no facts whatsoever None. and then finished it like, now you're smarter for having heard our thing. What did you learn, Dave? What is fat phobia, according to them? <sighs> you got to get in. <laughs> I'm oh, man. All right. <laughs> Discrimination against... People who are obese. Okay. Apparently, it's the erasure of of overweight people. Yeah. I don't even know what that means. Uh, I don't know how you erase people that are that big. I see them all the time. I couldn't erase them if I tried. I try to erase them from my mind often, <laughs> and I can't. Outwards. I like big butts, and I cannot lie. It's true. It's wild. Now, um, medical discrimination was the one that stood out to me. And I imagine what they mean by that is that their doctor tells them that they're fat and that they need to do, make changes in their life. And they're, and they're receiving that as a form of discrimination, 
which is also a very uh, easy catch-all word to use when you feel attacked. And I, would you say that this is a, a fairly prevalent narrative? I believe so, yes. It's becoming more prevalent. What is a phobia? Fear of. Mm-hmm. So if I had arachnophobia, I'd have a fear of what? Spiders. Right. If I had necrophobia, I'd have a fear of what? This sounds good. Mm-hmm. Heights? Death, Death. Or dead people. Death. Death people. Yeah. Not, that, that's very strongly contrasted against necrophilia. <laughs> Ooh, a little different. <laughs> necrophobia is fear of dead, dead things. So just by its construction as a word, it implies that uh, one is afraid of fat people. And so... What immediately comes up is somebody who's, I'm not afraid of fat people. I don't have any fear of fat people. Yeah, I just don't find so-and-so attractive or I don't whatever, whatever. My point is, is that it's presented as if it's a fear of some kind. And, uh, and as if being afraid of being fat is actually makes some, makes, there's something wrong with you for being afraid of fatness. Okay. And I want to... Yeah, I want to pull pull at that a little bit. So what I have, I have I have clips. See, that last video is stuff that we could just start to dismantle really quick because they didn't actually say things that were facts. They just said they just said a lot of words that sounded really good together. And when you put them together, it's like you seem like you're making a factual case, but you're not. You're just adding a lot of opinions on top of each other. Those are the easy ones to dismantle. But as we start, we're going to start to see how deep this goes. Next up, I have a small series of clips that I chose to break up. And uh, here's, we're going to have somebody on TikTok explaining um, the, the, the breakdown of fat phobia. So let's set it up. I got number two. It's just a quick little setup. The, the experts of TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> Generally speaking, there's three kind of big buckets of reasons why someone might engage in intentional weight loss. First is desirability, second, health, third, stigma. But at the end of the day, all of those are rooted in fat phobia in different ways. And I'll explain. Oh, she's going to explain. So, but I just want to break it up. She said that it it basically goes into three buckets, your desire to lose weight. One, desirability, health, and stigma. Those are the three things we're working with. So we're going to go point by point. We're going to listen to her point and we'll respond in kind. First point, please. Number three. First, desirability. That is kind of the most obvious when it comes to fat phobia. We currently live in a society that uplifts thinness, able-bodiedness, whiteness, cisness, and heterosexuality as the things that are most desirable. And so if you are wanting to lose weight in order to become more desirable, you are upholding a fat phobic beauty standard, as well as, you know, white supremacy and all that jazz. All that jazz. Yeah, you know, as well as all that white supremacy and all that jazz. So her claim is that, her claim is that we currently live in a society, that means now, we currently live in a society that uplifts thinness, able-bodiedness, whiteness, cisness, and cisness, all cisness means is that you identify your gender and your sex being the same thing. Okay, so I... Have, I'm a biological man and I identify as a man that makes me cisgendered, okay? So it lifts up currently 
thinness, able-bodiedness, whiteness, cisness, heterosexuality, and as, as if those things are the most desirable. Now, Dave, I ask you, what is the definition of the victim mentality? According to Unlifted? Man, the victim mentality. I just, I am so drawn into this. He, he, Mike, do you, <laughs> oh my God. He's, he's dropped. He's dropped. Yeah. Clearly. The acquired personality. Jesus, thank you. Yeah. yeah you'll get him started. Personality, personality trait. Whereby a victim or a person tends to regard himself or herself as the victim of the negative actions of others, even in the absence of clear evidence. And that's the part I want to focus on, even in the absence of clear evidence, because she says we currently now live in a society that uplifts thinness, able-bodiedness, whiteness, cisness, heterosexuality as the things that are most desirable. Is that factually accurate? It can't be. It can't be. We, that, is, that is not literally what is being lifted up right now on TV, on mainstream media. It is not cur- that is not currently the society that we live in. Uh, so I want to just state that first and foremost, is that the victim mentality starts with the belief that one is the victim of the negative actions of others, others even in the absence of clear evidence. And the evidence is not that we currently live in a society that uplifts these things. The evidence is that we live in a society that actually uh, at least, dare I say, vilifies people that fit that description. Thin, able-bodied, white, cis, and heterosexual is now the villain in a lot of these things. So that is actually, to me, the, the fact of the matter. We've leaned that way in the past two to five years. And considering this woman was on TikTok three weeks ago, I'm going to go ahead and assume that she's living in the now now, yeah, and in, this wasn't from five moment. years ago. Yeah, we're in that so moment. I just want to start there, is that if we can't get to, uh, this is a common belief, even in the absence of clear evidence, that this is what is being lifted up, when clearly that's not what's being lifted up because we're having a conversation about it right now, about fat phobia. So, uh, and then again, she just makes it like, hey, if you want to be more desirable to other people, you are afraid of being fat. And that you are inherently wrong for not for wanting to be desirable. What I also know is that victims like to hang out with other victims, and then when people start to leave their victim story, they don't like that so much. It's the crab mentality. So if other people desired to be desired, that would mean that they, the person who's telling you that you're a certain type of way for being that way, would have to take responsibility for why they may not be so desired. Gosh, no. And I just want to also make sense of this. I have, I have absolutely not even a problem. I appreciate and encourage representation in the media. Despite someone being a small majority, everyone deserves to see someone that they can look up to in a platform that is held up to be respectable. It is necessary and vital for anyone to see a model of the world through someone who looks like them and see that there's possibility to be happy, healthy, and thriving. What I, so I have no problem with it. Uh, and in fact, I encourage it. But to just breeze past it like that's not happening, I think that, you know, again, it's just, it's just factually untrue. So the majority of people in the United States especially are all of those things. Well, not th- except for thin. Um, most people are able-bodied, again, by the numbers. This isn't, I'm not making a judgment of it. This is just by fact. The majority of people are white, 
the majority of people are identify with their sex. The majority of people are heterosexual by the numbers. Mm -hmm. I'm okay with that not being the cultural norm and the only model of normal that we show, but I just want to say that just by the numbers, that is accurate. So it makes sense that those types of things would be desired by the majority of people if that's who they are and what they like. Uh, but let's, let's go to point number two that she's got about health. So next is health. What we know is that weight is not a good indicator of someone's health. And also your health is not an indicator of your worth. You can have health and body related goals for yourself that are not about fat phobia and not about weight loss. So let me give you an example. You might decide that you have a goal of hiking a particular mountain in your area. Now you would be engaging in different types of movement in order to achieve that goal. You may or may not lose weight in doing that. And in fact, there's lots of fat mountaineers and hikers. Yeah. Yeah. Now I want to say that I, on the whole, agree with what she just said. I don't think that your weight is indicative of your inherent value whatsoever. I think you as an individual person are worth being seen as a person. And in no way am I suggesting that fatness is indicative of your character and as your value as a person. I have an interesting fact from way back in the day. Mm -hmm. You ever do any of the, the, the research back with kings and queens and serfdom? Fat was actually a sign of wealth and posterity and, and huge huge kings existed for a reason because they were wealthy and that was their value. So how ironic is it that we come full circle? Sure. It's, actually, it's also a survival mechanism mm -hmm. from evolutionarily if we can store an abundance of food because food was very scarce for, you know, uh, <laughs> we're talking, you know, all but since yesterday of our human existence, food has been quite scarce and hard to come by. You know, and so it was very uh, uh, valued to store it if you got it. And the best way to store it is in fat. So, you know, and again, it makes so, sense. Yeah. It, yeah. Doesn't, it doesn't equal health. I would, so what we're going to get there too, I want to say about like uh, just the act being wanting to do activities. She said there's lots of uh, fat mountaineers and climbers. Um, I think most of those people would also say this activity would be easier if I didn't weigh as much as I weighed. Ounces equal pounds and pounds equal pain when you're going up and up and down a mountain. So uh, trying to keep this as, as neutral as we can, it's just advantageous at a certain point to be, uh, to lose weight, just like it would be advantageous to a certain point to gain weight. If you were underweighted for the activity that you were wanting to go on, like rucking, for example, it might be a lot easier to, it, it would be a lot easier to carry 50 pounds when I weighed 200 pounds than it would be for me to carry it if I weighed 125 pounds. And so when that's that activity, it would be, it, there would be utility in gaining weight, just like in the other direction, there would be utility in losing weight. Mm -hmm. So you can simply want to lose weight to make your life easier as well. But allegedly, you know, if you do that, then in a sense, if you do that for any other reason besides activity, you're fat phobic. And I, I disagree with that as a general rule. But I agree with her point that it doesn't indicate your value as a person. And I, I want to make sure that that's clear to our audience. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. But she's got one more. Um, she's got one more. Let's, let's keep 
pulling at these main three arguments. We've addressed desirability. You're wrong for wanting to be desirable. You're one wrong for wanting to make your life easier uh, and do your activities in an easier way. And what else are we wrong for here? Stigma. Third bucket reason is that you might be facing extreme fat phobia and anti-fat bias in your own life and you have personally mentally hit a wall where you can't deal with it anymore and so you decide to intentionally lose weight. That is actually the case with Roxanne Gay, who is very tall. They are like six foot or six one and prior to their weight loss surgery, they would have been categorized as a super fat. So being a super fat and being that tall comes with a particular type of physical accessibility challenge as well as anti-fatness. And so for that reason, Roxanne Gay elected to have weight loss surgery. But it's really important that if you still go through with intentional weight loss that you don't sacrifice fat liberation politics because otherwise it's still just fat phobia, even if you're doing it for your mental health and accessibility. Even if you're doing it for your mental health, Dave, you got to remember the fat liberation politics about it all. And accessibility, like her activities of daily living got better, and this is a bad thing. As long, it's okay as long as she keeps the fat, uh, the fat liberation politics, you see. And that's the key phrase. Is it's, and it is So much of this is being driven by politics. Be part of the group so we can come together as a group and have more leverage over our society via voting. A lot of this is rooted in politics, but I know who shapes politics because we've been talking about it a couple of episodes. Who, who, yeah, there's a lot of people that are shaping politics and funding uh, these types of groups and organizations, and they fund them for a reason. And I believe that uh, a lot of the mm, larger industries are using people like this manipulating their mind and convincing them to stay in this state because it helps them politically. Uh, but this is just a TikToker, man. You know, um, she doesn't, you know, I'm, I'm just a podcaster, I guess. But I just think that this whole idea that if you want to increase your chance of living long, happy, healthy life, that you are, that, that you're afraid of being fat phobic and that's a bad thing. I agree if it's you're discriminating against people, you're treating them like they're not human because they're overweight. That's not cool at all. Not if that's you, you know, go to hell. You treat people with kindness and respect. But I think that this idea that we should normalize fatness as an acceptance movement is a mind virus that is not serving us. And as I think I'm going to show, is counterintuitive to being a social, quote, social justice warrior. Anybody that may consider themselves a social justice warrior and believes that they are acting in integrity by telling people it's okay to be fat, I think by the end of this, I'll make a slight case that you're actually harming humanity uh, more than you're helping it. Um, so we got TikTokers and they're influencing people and that's all good, but it, 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 it keeps going. Okay. Cause that's, that's something we can get on and we can dismantle. The harder part is when you start to have people with uh, stamps of approval in the form of PhDs and special awards in the academic world. That's where it starts to anchor itself in. And I think uh, I think it's a little bit dangerous myself, or at the very least, I'll say it's not, uh, it doesn't actually get the result that we want, which is people to be happy, healthy, and living a free life. Um, the person I'm going to bring up, her name is, let me get this right, Sabrina, Sabrina Strings, Dr. St Sabrina Strings. She's a PhD 
a chancellor's fellow and associate professor of sociology at the University of California, Irvine. A chancellor's fellow, you receive that just for mm, context. You receive the title chancellor's fellow when you contribute to the knowledge base in your field in a significant way. They'll grant you this fellowship where it's like, wow, you're, you're really changing the direction of the field. So this woman is given the title that she's changing the direction of her field, and her field is sociology. And so she's going to give us a little insight. She wrote a book. She's wrote two books. But she's going to give us her insight as to where she believes fat phobia begins. Dave, you want to take a guess on when, where, where fat phobia started? I don't. <laughs> Come on, Dave. Take I don't want to take a guess. Next, next clip, Mike. I decided I would try to trace the transition in the Western world from valuing voluptuous figures to valuing slender ones. And what I found was that it had everything to do with the growth of the slave trade. <laughs> I'm trying to get Dave to laugh at some of the stuff. He's just not <laughs> biting. He's like, laughing. <laughs> I'm afraid he's afraid to he's afraid to hurt somebody's feelings. It's okay, man. We're just having a good time. No mom is so fat. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. So her claim is that it begins with what, Dave? Uh, the slave trade. And I think that if you really wanted to uh, be popular right now, you would connect it back to racism and slavery. That's what I think, personally. If I wanted to start a brand that stood out in that field, it would, be, it would behoove me to link it back to racism and slavery somehow. And apparently fat phobia started the rise of fat phobia in the history of humankind. It only started with slavery, dude. And she's going to tell us more about it. So I want to take this clip by clip. I want to take this clip by clip. We're going to get live reactions from Dave. And again, I'm not, I, I, there are points that I'll agree with her on. And then there are points that I'd like to, to call into question. So we'll go to the next Ask Dave part two. In the early years of slavery, voluptuous physiques were prized because slavery and the Renaissance were coterminous. And by a couple of centuries on, in the middle of the 18th century, it was very common for race scientists to suggest that, hmm, race is not just about skin color. It's also about behavior and appearance. We know that Europeans are the most superior, most disciplined, most rational of all the races. And that's why they are at the top of our racial hierarchies. But we also think that black people are overly sensuous. They love sex. They love food. And as a result, they are chock full of venereal diseases and they are overweight. So from this, we have the seedlings of our current aesthetic system, which suggests that white slender bodies, especially women's bodies, are valuable. But fat bodies, and especially fat black bodies, are worth denigration. So... This woman has received a chancellor's fellowship in sociology, and she referred to slavery, the beginning of slavery, having started with Africans. Is that factually accurate? Incorrect. I'd say that, that slavery begins a little bit more early than the 16 or 1700s over African slavery. First and foremost, mm -hmm. I need to start there. Mm -hmm. That is factually inaccurate and a weird way of saying it. She said at the beginning of the clip, this all coincides with the rise of slavery as if it only happened 
in the 1600s. That time, yeah. at that time. So that's the first thing. She also used a word. It's, she said it was the Renaissance and slavery were coterminous. I really am a suspect of people who use really big words that they know other people don't really know that well in an effort to sound and uh, smart. I don't like that. You could have said they happened at the same time, but instead you chose to say they were coterminous. And this was an interview that was done for Now This News. So this was like a clip that I cut out all the junk in the middle that was infographics and words and stuff. And I'm not saying that she's not worthy of her academic lineage and her academic praise and her academic awards. What I'm saying is I'm already finding holes in what you're saying simply by being a casual listener and a casual observer of history. I know for a fact slavery didn't start in the 1600s, but she also goes on to bring in uh, the idea of like men, like men were controlling this somehow. Um, So I'm going to let her, I'm going to let her keep going. Uh, I'm not, not totally buying in yet. She will get me on some things, but so far I'm I'm not really I'm not really buying that the whole rise of fat phobia, the fear of fat phobia started only when we 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 uh, started with African slavery. Uh let's see. This should be number 3. It's not just about health. This is clearly about aesthetics. This is about disciplining women often, and it's also about population management. People often feel uncomfortable with fat bodies. And so they do not want people themselves to feel comfortable gaining weight or being fat, especially when those people are women. And that goes back to the legacy of slavery and the ways in which the male gaze is often trying to regulate women's bodies such that they only have the right to look in particular ways. Hmm. (laughs) I agree that. Well, I don't know. She's just a lot of projections with that. You're hearing in the language, right? Mm hmm. Okay. She said, we clearly see, I don't clearly see that. I don't clearly see it. I'm open to entertaining the idea, even though I don't think it's actually a very useful idea to link it to slavery, to link it to racism, to link it to those sorts of pains, nor does it actually provide us any way out. And I think it actually makes it harder to get out when we start to make silly arguments like this and uh, in an effort to promote a book. Uh, I think it's I think it's very counterintuitive and very very counter in, uh, instructive. Is that a word? Well, intelligent, counterintelligent. And, and last <laughs> and, week I talked about a little so, bit so. of like faux intellectualism and how that guy was like, oh, he was the problem is the profits and the health are are they at odds, right? You remember that guy? Yeah, yeah. it's just voice. like there, there's just something about because I've been in some of these circles. You guys, this isn't. I'm not. I've been in some of these high-end intellectual cir- circles. You know, I, I've, I've been part of the milieu, as it's called. I know these types of people. And um, knowing that they could have been a classmate of mine, even if they did better than me in, on tests and things like that, I still saw certain people as intellectual equals, even if my aspirations to be a chancellor's fellow or an associate professor weren't. I, I didn't match that. But I would call this person into question about about some of this, uh, even even the utility of the argument, um, we'll we'll keep going. She she's going to get to a point that I agree with, but I we'll we'll get there. It wasn't until the 1980s around that the medical field started to use BMI. BMI they admitted was both flawed and arbitrary, but they adopted it anyway, and we can see the wreckage that has resulted from that decision. 
I don't think anything resulted from a BMI switch. Uh, they, BMI is not a good indicator of health. I agree with her at there. All whatsoever. It's a height weight ratio that is, can be off for a lot of different reasons. Um, but is that the reason that people are getting fat? No. It's because we, we created a test. We, we created a flawed <laughs> mechanism for measuring oh, what was clearly. The, it'd be like going. Food pyramid it'd be like saying. Example. It'd be like saying. Oh my god! It'd be like saying a dumpster fire. The cause of the dumpster fire is the thermometer that I threw in the dumpster fire to measure how hot it was. It's not the dumpster fire itself. So again, she's so people believe people like her because she's got these fancy titles, and I can go and look up that she's got a PhD and a chancellor's fellow. She must know what she's saying. But that is a complete weird false equivalency to say that the reason that people are fat now is because we started using BMI to measure fatness. Yeah. It's very silly. Keep going, Mike. That is to say, seemingly, there could have been almost no racial diversity in the studies that were used to create BMI. And we would today call this a form of colorblind racism. Of course... Back in the era of slavery, we expected, or at least Westerners at that time expected, that Europeans were the ones creating what constituted good and bad science. But these days, we live in a world of multiculturalism and inclusion, and we understand that white men in lab coats should not alone determine standards for the globe without research that is incorporating a diverse array of individuals. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Totally. I, if the if studies were set up that weren't indicative of the population that they're studying, that's not great science. Right. You want to get as close to the actual population that you want to study as possible. And if that means that certain ethnicities and genders were not included in these studies, couldn't agree more that we need to set up some better studies and better science. What I take, uh, well, I'll push back on this point, is that she's saying... This the irony to me is this. She's saying it's uh, we live in a multi multicultural society, and it's no longer okay or appropriate for white quote white men in lab coats to be deciding the science. But that's not how it is. It's not just white men in lab coats figuring out the science. There are scientists studying fatness and obesity all around the world. There's Indian scientists, Chinese scientists, Korean scientists, German scientists, Afri uh, Ethiopian, Kenyan scientists. There's scientists of all different races, ethnicities, and creeds all over the world studying obesity. It's not just white people in lab coats. And the irony is that she's saying that only white people and white men have access to that sort of academic access while being a black woman PhD chancellor's fellow associate professor at a California university. So clearly she has access to that level of education and level of opportunity. So to say that nobody else, that it's only white people in lab coats. No, man, I'm not, I'm not buying it. And it's not, it's also not in constructive whatsoever to make villains out of people during all of this. That is the, the main fault of even High-end science is that they are stuck in the victim mentality. And when you start to understand the words and how people use words, you can see, even when they're really smart, how they're using their words. And like Dave mentioned, how they're projecting their ideas onto the world as if it's reality. And that is not the world we live in, even if people keep screaming that that's the world that we live in. That's not the world that we live in right now. Keep going. 
So you talk to doctors there and they say things like, we are interested there in a Canada. portrait of our patients. That means when they come in, they can take their weight, but their weight is not going to be the main thing they're going to talk to them about. They're going to talk to them about their family history, their dietary practices, their exercise, their sleep, their levels of stress. All of these things and many more contribute to our health outcomes. We can talk about environmental toxins. We can talk about the walkability of your neighborhood. If you have access to grocery stores or only convenience stores, all of these things are consequential to our health outcomes. But unfortunately, they're not taken that seriously within the medical establishment in this country. Uh, great. And that is, where our, I, that is where our beliefs cross over. Yeah. I couldn't agree I with agree. her more. That is, th those are conversations that could and should be happening. And all those, uh, damn near all of those factors she talked about are factors that contribute to health in one way or another. And, and like, again, I want to say that uh, I'm, the reason that I'm bringing this up is not to tear this woman up. It's to actually highlight the faults in her argument so we can get to a constructive place where we do get though I just I disagree with her route to solving the problem which is to blame it on racism and blame it on white people and blame it on slavery when really it's the fact as simple as what she finished with actually it's as simple as the doctors aren't having the right types of conversations with the with the patients that's the real problem and we're not discussing overall wellness and uh, I guess she said the other argument that's been made is that fatness is not does not there's no science to suggest that it equates to poor health but or your weight. That's the part. That's the thing that they're saying, well, your weight isn't an indicator of your health. And that's true in, in a relative sense. Mm -hmm. You know, if somebody's six five and 220 pounds, and I say this person weighs 220 pounds, yes, that weight wouldn't be an indicator of their health necessarily. But if I told you that person was five foot four and 225 pounds, their weight would matter. In, it would be a symptom or it would be reflective of their overall health. So, no, I don't think weight equates to health. And that's the part of the fat phobia argument that I think is a it's it's not a good place to start. It's because weight is not the indicative of health. It is a symptom or a comparative marker that your health may be off track. And because of uh, the implications of being overweight, which we're about to get into, like, we need to be able to get to the point of why this matters, why having the conversation around fatness matters and obesity matters and being a, quote, super fat. It has nothing to do with your value as a person. It has nothing to do with your morals or your ethics. It has a lot more to do with numbers, facts, figures, and we're going to get into those because I think that this is the real constructive way out of this is not to make it about your character and play identity politics because that's the easiest game to manipulate by the industries and the marketers and all those things. I'm trying to bring the power back to the individual. Think about your personal experience and how you use your words and you can see how it happens out there. So there's a reason that we should be phobic or afraid of fatness and has nothing to do with whether or not people are uh, worthy of receiving love. Just another point on that, too, for listeners and for my own sake of clarity, it, it feels as though in this media we're interchanging the word weight and fat, which is 
the lowest hanging fruit and the most obvious thing to, to myself being, you know, 17, I don't know if you know, 17 years in the fitness industry. I don't know if you know. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> Steven Seagal over here, dude. He's been, he's been I, I don't know like if you know. 40, 42 years. 40, 47 years I've been in the fitness industry, you know, just grinding it. But seriously, like, that's the thing is that people are using these, these two words simultaneously, interchangeably, and they're very different. Yes. And and there's lots of reasons that people may be overweight, and some of them are medical. Most of them are pre- uh, preventable. But there's a reason that we should be afraid of this. Uh, there is reason to have fear on a large scale, and it's important to talk about it. So number 12. Two new guidelines from the American Academy of Pediatrics for teens who are overweight or obese. These new recommendations call for a more proactive approach. Dr. Jen Ashton is here to explain. And Jen, pretty significant shift. Yeah, this is the first edition, George. It's 101 pages. And basically the change here went from watchful waiting for children and teens with overweight and obesity to an aggressive all-hands-on-deck approach involving pediatricians, nutritionists, other health professionals, and the parents. Even surgery and medication. Yeah, and I I know that's going to get a lot of attention when people People think, isn't that aggressive? What they're saying in terms of surgery, bariatric surgery and FDA approved weight loss medications are for children or teens with severe obesity. You're talking bariatric surgery. That's a BMI greater than or equal to 120 percent starting at 13 and up for weight loss medications starting at 12 years of age and up. George, there have been 20 to 30 years now of good data good clinical experience showing safety and efficacy. And again, it's about trying to jump in on those short-term and long-term risks that we know come with obesity. Dr. Janesh, thanks very much. Safe and effective, the medications. So they, that was Dr. Jen Ashton. She's often on Good Morning America, ABC, as like a medical correspondent, so to speak. And what she's explaining there is that there have been updated guidelines in the medical field on how to treat childhood obesity. Now, uh, that bears the question, why would they need to make a change to address this, Dave? Because it's getting out of hand, childhood obesity. So much so that they're now having to approve weight loss medications, hello, big pharma, for losing weight as well as bariatric surgery. Do you know what bariatric surgery is? Um, Reducing stomach volume or um, digestional digestion components or chopping out pieces of the large intestine. So they're, they're, they're having to consider now, as part of the regular guidelines, the path of taking out children's organs in an effort to help them lose weight. And there's going to be lots of people that make money off of this. Lots of people who are going to make money off of having these types of surgeries. Because eventually, even though, well, let's play, play the next clip, 13. Rose Garcia says for as long as she can remember, doctors told her she was overweight. What did the doctor or others tell you to do? Just to exercise and eat better. She struggled unsuccessfully for years. Then, at age 15, she developed hypertension and became pre-diabetic. I visited my doctor and I told her that I wanted to lose weight, but I wanted help. I knew I couldn't do it by myself. With parental permission, she finally tried bariatric weight loss surgery last June, along with counseling for emotional eating. Since then, she has lost more than 90 pounds. Did you look in the mirror and think, who is that? 
my clothing was a big, big sign. I would put on my favorite dresses and they were too big. And it was really, really surprising to me. The new guidelines from the AAP recommend better nutrition, exercise, and face-to-face counseling. Treatment may also include weight loss drugs and surgery for adolescents who meet the criteria. But for many families, medication and surgery are not covered by insurance. Yet. If they have insurance. What do you think about these new guidelines? I think that it's it's definitely a step in the right direction. How do you thread that needle between body shaming and communicating that there are some consequences to your health if you're overweight or obese? It is not about how you look. It's how your body is on the inside. Lots of obstacles remain, especially inequity and access to health care, medical insurance and healthy food. Now, some parents may question whether the recommendations for drugs and surgery in some cases go too far. But Nora, the AAP is making it clear that more aggressive early intervention is needed. This is how it starts. It's a nuanced clip. Because again, it said they, they're not covered by insurance yet. Also, Dave, you have lots of clients. Tell me, um, what do you call those things uh, when you see your client win and you want to show it off to people? Testimonial. Testimonial. A testimonial is a type of ad. This is a native ad in plain sight. This is a camouflaged ad that we discussed in previous shows. This was paid for by an organization that is set to benefit from the bariatric surgery. This is a client testimonial, and it's positioned as a news story. This is a client testimonial positioned as a news story so they can make a political push to have acceptance of these types of things included in insurance. You don't want to be fat phobic and discriminatory against fat people. So we need to include these in our Medicare, Medicaid, health insurance models because you don't want to be fat phobic. You see, that's why you got to do it as opposed to the real reason that you shouldn't be doing this, which is The fact that we're even having to consider this in the first place is the first real sign of the problem. And the two clips that I've played have to do with children, right? It's getting so out of hand that we're having to talk about these extreme, extreme intervention measures because... For for kids to be healthy. For kids. And as you learned from last show, a lot of this is driven by the food industry. The food industry is causing the problem. It's clear as day. It is the biggest dumpster fire that we can possibly see in America, and we're too busy arguing about the thermometer or about the, the, the morals and ethics of, of saying that this is a dumpster fire. It's getting out of hand, and it's going to keep going. Next clip, number 14. Take a look at this big number. More than 20 million Americans age 20 and older have coronary artery disease, the most common form of heart disease. Dr. Jim, there's this misconception that it affects men more than women. I was growing up and I was always taught that it was the number one killer for, you know, women, heart disease. That is true. But here's the thing, you guys, no one thinks it will happen to them. So Mm. even if they are aware that it is the number one killer of men and women, people think, well, not me. But actually, we need to all realize that this is potential 
potentially life-threatening for all of us. Uh, take a look at the stats for women, particularly in heart disease. Over 44% of women starting at age 20 years of age and up have some form of heart disease, whether it's coronary artery disease, congenital heart disease, valvular heart disease. Heart disease is the number one killer of new moms in this country. So when we talk about the maternal mortality epidemic, heart disease tops that list. Women are 6% less likely to receive bystander CPR in an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So again, in terms of interventions, life-saving treatments, um, they're not doing as well. They're 23% less likely to survive if they suffer an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And in just in terms of research in science, they are still underrepresented in clinical research when it comes to heart disease. Now, you guys, for the last several years, there's been a big push, a big effort for OBGYNs as the primary care physicians of women to really talk to the cardiologist, talk to their patients about prevention, which is so important because 80% of heart disease is preventable. Did you happen to catch the ages at which they studied? 20. And up. Yeah. So coronary heart disease, all of these different heart diseases are now so prevalent that we're needing to recognize that it's killing new mothers in their 20s. This is new. This isn't, this isn't, uh, hasn't been going on for 20 years or even 40 years. This is, this is very new that coronary heart disease is impacting people that are 20 and up. 20s. And I wonder how they get heart disease. Well, they've spent likely the majority of their childhood as an obese person. And you are, if you're obese for 10 years or more, yeah, of course you're going to get things, not of course, but it is a high likelihood that you will get things like heart disease in your 20s. And we need all these, quote, medical interventions to stop all of this. And if we don't get them, it's going to be uh, uh, that, that, that we're failing society somehow by not having them around. Um, this is all leading up to a point. Let's go ahead and play 15, please. At our current rate, over 95% of all Americans will be overweight or obese in two decades. By that was 2050, 10 years ago. one out of every three Americans will have diabetes. One out of three will have diabetes and not type one. And they said, just, just to run that back, 95% of Americans will be obese. Overweight. Overweight. Okay. Overweight. Overweight. In two decades. In two decades. That clip was from 2014 and has no consideration of the pandemic whatsoever. So we're 10 years into that. And I guarantee you we're a lot further ahead uh, on speed to, to that 95% than they predicted in 2014, okay? So that's a lot. One in three Americans is 100 million people, more than 100 more than million that. people, yeah, more than okay? So if one out of three people, if one out of three people need uh, insulin, well, <laughs> insulin, uh, and I well actually let's just remember what is causing all this before we get to insulin number 16 just a reminder 100 years ago Americans were eating a half a pound of sugar per person per year half a pound of sugar per person per year today 100 years later according to US Department of Agriculture Americans are eating 157 pounds of sugar per person per year or now we're eating a half a pound a day so in 100 years we've gone from a half a pound of sugar per person per year to a half a pound of sugar per person per day that plus the deficiency of these nutrients in our food has resulted in this epidemic diabetes do you think our genetics has changed that much i don't think so damn damn 
that's a what a thousand no a pound a year half a pound a year versus half a pound a day is a 365 fold increase i believe that's 3650 percent uh i might even be short a, a zero on that but we've uh 365 folded our our sugar consumption and now 95 percent of people in in just a hundred years of americans are are going to be overweight and like we said, one in three will have diabetes and they need what? Insulin. Next clip. What is insulin? Insulin is the energy storage hormone. Insulin turns sugar into fat for storage. That's insulin's job. Pretty straightforward. You got to have it to take the sugar out of your bloodstream. And since we're pumping a whole lot of sugar into the bloodstream lately... In our society, we need a lot more insulin. But that's a there's a problem with that. Next clip. Tonight, the CDC is warning of an alarming surge in diabetes in coming decades among Americans under the age of 20. Treating the disease with insulin can be very expensive. And in our series, Side Effects, Gotti Schwartz looks at why a cap on prices in the new year will still leave tens of millions behind. As inflation rises, insulin prices in the U.S. remain by far the highest in the world. We are definitely seeing people living with diabetes ration their insulin more than they've ever been. And how dangerous is that? It's incredibly dangerous. I mean, it, it, you are dealing with people's lives. For years, some have chosen to head across the border to buy insulin in places like Mexico, like this group we accompanied in 2019. But this year, there was hope that all that could finally change with the Inflation Reduction Act and talk of a nationwide cap on monthly insulin costs. When the legislation goes into effect in January, there will be a $35 a month limit on what patients pay out of pocket for insulin, but only for those with Medicare simple economics question for you what happens to prices when the supply stays the same and demand goes up prices go up prices go up so in order for them the companies to accommodate the rise and rate of obesity prevalence and diabetes prevalence they have to match the demand for the the product which is insulin but it's hard to scale up your operations really fast to serve a huge client base. So it takes time. So there may be a short supply. Or if you wanted to also artificially and even more so jack up the prices, you would intentionally create a shortage while demand is going up so you can set a new precedent for the cost of said product. You get people used to a certain product and then you back it down just a little bit, even though that's 5X from where you started, you take them up to a peak and then you pull it back down. People stabilize this new price and they go, oh, this is the norm, okay? This is all about money. Fatness is profitable. It's profitable by so many industries. It's profitable by the medical industry. It's profitable by the pharmaceutical industry. It's profitable by the food. Did I say food already? It's profitable by the insurance industry. Uh, in- insurance industry. They said just there that there's going to be a cap on how much someone will pay out of pocket, $35, only if you have Medicare, but that's for now. It always starts with a small thing, and then they expand this to be the norm, just like having those bariatric surgeries covered by insurance, forcefully by insurance. Just because you're not out of pocket more doesn't mean that it isn't jacking the prices up for you and for everyone else, because health insurance is going to get that money, son. 
There's a reason that you're only paying out of pocket $35 and that they're paying because they are making hand over fist money off of you being fat. Because number 16, why won't they? Uh, why? If this wasn't about making money, we would start to promote things that promote health, but we don't because 19. They have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders for quarterly profits. And unfortunately, profitability and health actually are at odds. One more time for the people in the back. Listen up. They have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders for quarterly profits. And unfortunately, profitability and health actually are at odds. That is what is going on with fat phobia. Fat phobia is being lifted up because it's profitable. Health and profitability are at odds because people on these boards of these companies have a fiduciary responsibility by law. They have a responsibility to make maximize profit for their shareholders. It's built into the system, which is why we're not promoting health. We're promoting profitability, and that's leading us down a path. Number 20. The financial aspects of this are staggering. 75% of our healthcare dollar goes to the maintenance or treatment of chronic metabolic disease. If you think the national debt is a problem right now, wait till you see the tsunami of debt that's coming from the healthcare impact of obesity. It's gonna be an enormous burden that we are gonna be placing on the shoulders of our children. And that's why we should be phobic of fatness. This is an economic time bomb that by normalizing this, we are writing our own economic death warrant because I would like to share a couple of stats here. Right now, um, this is a, as most recent as 2018, and uh, I'll just say it. You know these numbers are, are not nearly accurate now. 73% of Americans qualified as either overweight or obese. That's the first thing. And 10% of those have what they call severe obesity. This is causing to, for us to spend way more money on people to keep them healthy and alive. How much more money? Let me, let me give you the breakdown. In 1960, we spent an average of an $146 per person per year on health care. When adjusted for inflation, just to put that in now dollars, $146 in 1960 is the equivalent of about $1,300 or $1,400 today. So 10x, okay? About $1,400 per person adjusted for inflation is what we spent in 1960. Now, we spend over $12,000 per person per year, a tenfold increase in the amount of money that we spend per person on healthcare, and that number is only going up. In 1960, the average percentage of household income that was spent on healthcare was 5%. The average house in 1960 would spend about 5% of their income on healthcare. Now we're over 10%. 10% of our personal income is being spent on health care. Uh, in U.S. healthcare spending grew 2.7% in 2021 
meaning that we spend $4 trillion, $4.2 trillion is spent on healthcare and medical related things, which accounts for (laughs) nearly 20% of our gross domestic product. Now, I know that their GDP, just to give you, I'm going to make this easy, GDP is simply a measure of how much goods and services were produced and purchased by the end user in a market, meaning of all the money that is spent in the United States for goods and services, 20%, one-fifth of all, think about how many things you could spend your money on. I could list off 25 things right now. I could probably give you 50 things I could spend my money on. You give me long enough. One in five dollars is spent on healthcare. One in five. And that number is only going up, which means health insurance costs are only going up. And for every time we normalize and stabilize a bariatric surgery or a medical intervention, instead of telling these cruel fucks at big food to go fuck off and kick rocks, and until we're courageous enough to vote for people that'll tell those big food motherfuckers to fuck off and kick rocks and stop destroying our future and stop destroying our children, this problem is only going to get worse. And that is exactly why we should be afraid of fatness. And uh, double up. It's time for a break. I put Dave through a lot. In fact, I put Dave through so much last week. This man, I broke him. He was he broke me. Tell him about it. I I've been reciting the definition of the victim mentality for so long, and you guys just broke me. I broke you there, and I broke you last week because Dave was so stressed out by my by my episode last week. This man started smoking weed again. Unstreaked. He hit me up on Saturday. Was like, bro, I'm coming to get my volcano. (laughs) I unstreaked. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick smoke break and we're going to be back for this producer segment the of the Serious Fun Podcast so we can start having some more fun. Thank God. All right, thank God. We'll be back in a minute. Made a nice bed in the snow
ladies and gentlemen. That is an old group from Hamilton, Ontario. Robbins Avenue. And before that, you heard Can't Get Away. For those of you way back in the day, you may remember that. Those, those old Canadian kids. Calgary Boys. The Heist. I'm going to throw it over to Brooksy, my main man. Well, Dave, I'd like to thank you for your courage. Thank you, man. Right? Way to, way to stay in the pocket with me today. You too, Mike. Thanks, buddy. Great job. Yo. You know, I bet that feels a bit like a face slap. Would you would you say that's accurate? Yeah. You feel like you're getting slapped in the face? Open-handed. It's like a, it's like a serious fun face slap. A little, a little left-right. So I figured, you know, this might be a face slap for a lot of people in our audience. And for that, I, 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 I don't apologize, but I can empathize that it feels like a slap in the face. So we're going to try to make something of this. If you... This is the part of the show. This is episode number four, and I'm still teaching you how to be a producer and be involved in the show. We want you involved. That's why we're going to make these four episodes, build some more shows, get this out there to you so you can love it, listen to it, and then know that on episode five, during this segment, you have the opportunity to have your name and a, and a, and a note read out loud to support the show and to show us the value that you're getting. As we've mentioned before, there are three different types of value for value that we like to get. Dave, tell them what the first one is. Time. Time. Second one. Talent. And? Treasure. While treasure is preferred, time is also a very valuable asset. And if you're taking the time to listen to this show, I encourage you to take the extra bit of time to introduce one person that you know. At least, if not 10, I'd love it if you introduced me to 100 of your best friends. 100p. Mm. And when you do, you're going to give them you're going to give them this. Number 22. Oh, I got not sleeping. No, oh, not sleeping. Just you got your you got your dramatic pause. Dr- yeah, it's a dramatic pause. Which number? 20 what? 22. 22. 5. What is the five fingers? Say to the face. <laughs> Yeah, buddy. That's oh. what Dave's getting, oh, show man. by show. I want to do it again. What is the five fingers? Say to the face. Slap. Dude, what a great skit. It's the serious fun five <laughs> finger face slap. I love it. Say it fast. Serious fun five finger face slap. Serious fun five finger face slap. You're going to go out and you're going to tell them, what did the five fingers say to the face? Slap. Slap. Listen to my homies Brooks and Dave on their serious fun show. It is a riot. And it's also a bit of a fucking... Uh, face slap when you start to catch some of these facts and I hate to do it to you but I love to do it to you too that's just a fact so if you introduce somebody to this show with your time please give them that five finger face slap for us and just let them know we exist we appreciate it if you think things are funny if you find funny things like that that was a clip from Chappelle show I mean that's a famous Charlie Murphy true Hollywood story Rick James episode that's Rick James what did the five finger say to the face so if you Find funny things that you think we would find funny. You can give us your talent, clip it, and send it to me. Brooks at SeriousFun.io. You can reach out to me. I will use it. I promise. You like some of the skits that you've heard? We're going to use them. I got another skit coming up. It's not a skit, but I got another segment coming up. And if I want you to participate. Please give us your talent. And of course, 
we would love your treasure. This would really help me spend a lot more time and energy on the show, keep making the production of this show better, and it would allow us to, again, share that value with you in as many ways as we can. And so if you are open to becoming an executive producer of an episode, if you donate $25, oh, dear listener, you donate that sweet $25, we are going to make you an executive producer. You can you can claim the credits on IMDb. You would be a podcast producer. That's the value that we're giving back. That sounds cool. And you will also be able to send us a note, and we will read it. And as I've said many times, if I don't want to read it, I'm going to make Dave read it. Okay, that's what the show is about. It's making him as uncomfortable as possible in real time because I get my fucking kicks off on that, okay? That's what this is about. Uh, so if I, I don't like it, up. I'm going to make Dave read it, and you'll be an executive producer of the show. Oh, I love that. And then if you donate $10 or more, you become an associate executive producer of the show, and you'll also get to read a note, or I'll read it, and like that'll a, be great. Like if, you wanted, if you wanted to actually send <laughs> us the voice note with your donation, I'll even take your voice note, and you can hear your voice on the Serious Fun Podcast. Oh, I feel like that should be a $25 game. That's, that's a big one. But okay, that's a big right. one. Building we'll on the fly. Okay. We'll, okay. Throw, we'll, we'll let them in for 10 for now. Let's just build some momentum. It's just like the insurance, you know? $35, boys. All right. Right. And then if you <laughs> if you donate a dollar or more, we will read your name and say thank you because every dollar matters. If everybody that was in our, uh, uh, our listenership donated a dollar per show, we would be thrilled to be able to provide and receive that value for you. And so that is exactly how we will spend our producer segment in episode five. Next episode is we're going to read out all these names and voice notes. And I'm confident, confident because people love us. They're getting a lot of value from this. And I haven't, I haven't scared them off with my face slaps that they're going to want to kind of give that back in value. So ahead of time. Thank you. Thank you. <sighs> feel good boys. It's been nice. Hey, uh, I, I got this like, this is a live show, right? We don't, we don't do edits. So um, my <laughs> microphone just all of a sudden just decided oh. that it wants to run away from it's me. Do you running. know how I can, yeah, you know I can, I can fix, I can fix that. that. Mike's going to step yeah, away from the microphone on, yeah. for just let's, a second. Let's you just can, hang on. Hang on. I know we, we, got, we got, we got, we got time for this. Give me one minute. <laughs> That's the service excellence, boys. Didn't even need the minute. But we'll, we'll let it play out. Check this. Yeah, bitches. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Who knew you could turn make Jeopardy so hard, dude? <laughs> we go hard. We go hard. Can we That's get? It. Can we get him on the show? You think? Alex, go hard, Alex Trebek. No, not, well, maybe <laughs> me, me. be tough to do. And uh, <laughs> we might know a couple of channels in our network that could pull Alex Trebek from the grave. But R.I.P. Alex Trebek. No doubt. No doubt. Hey, you're an icon. You could get Will Ferrell though doing Alex Trebek. That would be. I mean, yeah. Let's see if we can book Will Ferrell. I'm, I'm happy to have him as a third. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take Ape, Ape Tit for uh, 4000 I'm happy to have Will Ferrell, <laughs> legend, uh, as a third on the Serious Fun podcast any day fun. of the week. He'd be fun. He'd so 
No, I didn't break it. So this week, uh, Dave and I you were broke it again. No, it just it, it stayed oh, spinning oh, as soon oh, as you walked away. Yeah. So I'm just gonna spin with it, and eventually it's gonna settle. Oh, it's all good, man. This is okay. a live show. It can only spin so far. That's it's fine. Yeah, we're okay. So Dave and I have a uh, a men's mastery group that we uh, that we hold together. And earlier in the week, I was uh, we were doing a a master class on love and connection, and then. Part of my contribution was that I played a, like a little sketch or a skit that I did for for YouTube slash uh, you know my own personal page back in the pandemic when I just didn't have a whole lot to do, and so I created a, a new segment. And Dave was like, "You should totally make that a serious fun bit." And so, with that, I bring you the first iteration of number twenty three, Manthropology, <laughs> Speed of Implementation. Love by the way, it. here we go. Manthropology. Manthropology. That's going on the pad, dude, for sure. Thank God. Yeah. So today on Manthropology, I'm going to teach you how not to be fat by eating steak the best way possible. Dave, how do you like to make your steak? Man, all right. Every man has their own steak. A real man knows there's how to how to cook a good steak, but there's not just one way to cook a good steak. That's true. So Dave, tell me, as we're manthropologying today, how do you cook what's your ideal steak? I may get lambasted by this. You are. Maybe. I don't know. I slow cook outside. I I smoke the steak. You're a steak grill. smoker? I'm a steak smoker. You sick son of a bitch. In the early stages. Okay. Get it warm on the warmish mm. on the inside. Mm. Right. And then I sear it on a cast iron with some ghee, which is clarified butter, with a little higher smoke point. And I sear it on both sides in the cast iron, and it's phenomenal. <laughs> oh my God, this is so good. Great pull up there, yeah. yeah. Why, what, what, how did you find yourself into a situation where that was your method? I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get down here. My, you know, come yeah, down you know I'll tell you what, brother. My <laughs> grilling method came about here. <laughs> Out of necessity, because my grill won't go over about 300 degrees. It just won't do it. So I have learned through experience to slow cook damn near everything, and I smoke it too. Let that be the first lesson on manthropology. You got to be adaptive. <laughs> be adapted and smoke your meat. Smoke your meat. The way here. Here's my recipe. What I do is I pull it out, pull it out early, and get that, get it down to room temperature. Oh, 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 it's a given, of course. Salt, good salt. Yes, sir. That's all you need. Good salt and some rest. Then I pull out my wok. <laughs> pull, I pull out my wok, <laughs> which is I'm a, I'm a country man who happened to live in Asia, which is a fact. From the south, lived in Korea. I have a walk, and I get it real hot. I get it real hot, and then I drop down some bacon grease. But you gotta check to make sure it's hot enough. And the way you do that is you get a, just a little bit of drop of water, and you just splash, and you hit the splash. And if it's and if it's real hot, it just it, it just beads up, and that's how you know it's hot. Throw down that that beautiful bacon grease, and then I lay it the, the good side down. Four to five minutes, depending on the thickness. Four to five minutes on sear. Hot. Hot, I say. 
flip it and I get it hot again. Three to four minutes, depending on the on the, on the thickness. And then I t- what I do is I turn the heat off and then I let it stay on the pan. And I let it come to rest on the pan. Soaking it up. And just gets that heat perfect. And when you cut into it, just a little bit of that soft pink in the middle. Mm. You know how I love my soft pink in the middle, Dave. Mm. <laughs> we still talking about steak? Yes, sir. Steak. Jeez. Dave smokes his steak. I sear my steak. All right. And that's how you can have some steak in your life. And if you only ate steak, I guarantee you, you'd lose a lot of weight. I guarantee you. You'd start to feel better. Your skin would clear up. You drop a couple of them LBs since you're out on the mountain anyway. You like it on the mountain. Make it easier. Make your life easier. And I don't know how we did it, but we just turned manthropology into a, a segment <laughs> with, with voices like this. I love it. <laughs> that was fun, boys. That was good. That's, that's what you call thinking on the fly. All right, boys? You throw shit at me, I'm going to throw it right back. Wapow. Well, that was beautiful. I'm so glad you were prepared. That was so awesome. And the thing is, is like you, you eat steak, especially a good ribeye. It's got good fat. And there's something that's just so gratifying about the fat. Because uh, it, could, you, could you play number 24? When you take the fat out of the food, it tastes nasty. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me that's not accurate. Yeah, that's so accurate. And, and you got to replace it with something. Typically, you're, you're replacing it with lo and behold, sugar, Yeah, right? To keep that the satiety high and to make it taste good, right? And when you replace these things with sugar, which is a, a rather nutritionally devoid nutrient, uh, you know, you're losing all the micronutrient profiles. You're losing the vitamins, the minerals, all the other good stuff that you get. So much of our path out of this is, is good quality food. And uh, uh, access is access is an issue, but and as as a general like statement, food is our way out of this issue that gets us away from a lot of the big industries that make money. Real food, real food that real you food. know that you that to the best of your ability, you're sourcing as close to where you live geographically as possible. Yes, and is as is taken care of at the highest level that you can possibly afford, and you are no longer buying things that come in boxes, bags, or have labels. And the more you can do that, even on a budget at Aldi, at some of these like, uh, uh, you know, like low cost grocers, even if you're just getting fruits, vegetables and meats and eggs from places like that, then you are on a huge step forward in your health. And uh, just remember, when you take out of the fat out of the food, it tastes nasty. Number 25. So you take the fat out of the food. Play that it one tastes more time. nasty. I, I, I got an ISO for you, though. Oh, I love that. OK, you want 25? Oh, yeah, I got you. It tastes nasty. I want that, that. That, that might be a pad too. That's, that's I was going to say play it like again. That. It tastes nasty. Yeah, we just, we'll trim up the ends on that. <laughs> yeah, dude, I could record that right now. Let's see. All right, let's do it. Let's We're do doing it. live production let's on the series one pocket. Let's record that bad boy right here. There we go. We're gonna hit that one there. We're gonna go here and. Oh, I love it. This is so cool. Here we go. Just one sec. Yeah. It tastes nasty. Cool. Now. Uh huh. Just. So now he's recorded cut. it. Yeah, we cut. He's that. cut it, and it shows up on his little screen. Even screen. He's cutting it. Go, Holy crap! Nasty, huh? Here we cool. go. Wow. Do it again. Hey, hey. It tastes nasty. Okay, and then cool. we'll just drag that back so that we get a nice quick clip, and then we'll hit replay. We'll go one. Cool. I'm gonna change the name here because uh-huh. you guys like we're still under a minute. I got yeah. acres of time. Acres of time. Nasty. We're gonna call that nasty. Nasty. I got another one for that. 
So we got wow, nasty. this is cool. Here we go. Okay, cool. And then we just hit. It tastes nasty. Whammy. Tight. Yeah, guys. Yeah, that is tight. That's a tight clip. Nasty. Love that. Let's just go up play 26. I'd love to. Come on. Come on, baby. Sugar is poison. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lesson Accurate. of the day. Yes. Got Lesson it. of the day. Well, Sugar is poison. I mean, that one follows up like here. This is, oh, we got a great one. We didn't get this one earlier. Oh, maybe that's why. It was like, go yeah, to hell. It, it didn't, yeah, it didn't want to take. Oh, it's very oh, it's quiet. so low. <laughs> oh my God! If we can get the volume pulled up on that one, oh, we'll bring work, that one I'll back. Trust on that me, one. it will be relevant that, again be on this one. show. Yeah, you guys. Yeah. Do we have that's a bopper flop today? Oh, dude. Let me uh, let me just see. I'm. I do actually have to check this one. Okay. Um, he I'm does actually. Call, have to. I do actually have to check it in. We'll call it in. We'll call it in. We'll spell this one. Okay. Okay. Welcome back to bopper flop. Yeah, we definitely. We definitely got one. Oh man, what do you guys for this? Do mm-hmm. you guys just want to go in blind? Yes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. For sure. Okay. All right. <laughs> I almost gave an announcement. Now, what am I doing now? Do you want to go in Jesus. blind? Let me give you all the let information. Me, let me, before let I me start. actually. Yeah. Just you know what? You can't. That was a <laughs> fake questions. Yeah. Okay. Here we go, guys. Smoking the devil's lettuce. Oh my god. Smoking the devil's lettuce. Smoke, smoking the devil's lettuce. That's great scratch work. Wow. Smoking the devil's lettuce. Smoke, smoke, smoking the devil's lettuce. Mark England is now a percussion instrument. Wow. Oh. Bring the What? Smoke <laughs> Mad double t- two fifth. Yeah, bop. yeah, that's but what the, I was. But the Mark England, it was a, it was a shock. It was a shock. Like I didn't know where it was going. I was kind of like, disengage and disengage. Wow, you got the fucking flag. <laughs> there you go, man. I'm gonna right. give it a. I'm gonna give it a out of like a two. Uh, we'll do five. Sign. Five Biebers. Five Biebers. Yeah, and yeah. five. Give no, me, ele- give, give it eleven. Uh, Bieber is the eleven scale. But I like where you were going with this. Sorry for interrupting. What do we got? Well, you have like two. I have two hands. Okay, yeah. and I can make like the rocker. You got your the Texas rocker hand, hand. Yes. right? And then this if is... I'm like full on arms extended double Lazio. rocker, that's it. And then and then you throw in oh, the Lazio, fuck. then that's a move all to its own. Yeah, because you got Lazio with fists. And if the beat had dropped sooner, mm. I would have been there. Full as. However, I am I am headbanging. 
I'm headbanging with one rock symbol up in the air. Okay. So it's I'm clearly bopping. Yeah. Uh, and that's my only feedback. I think it's great. And and Mark England as a as a throw in it on that song is he's a real literally gem. an instrument. Mark England is now a percussive smoke instrument. Smoking the devil's lettuce. Smoke, smoke, <laughs> smoke, smoke, smoke. Smoking the smoke devil's, devil's lettuce. lettuce. Yeah, it's a full bop. It's yeah, a full bottle. It's the closest. It's the closest we've gotten to getting Uncle Moon on a track. Oh shit! Right? It's the closest so far. What? What is with this legend of Uncle Moon? Anyway, what I've do we got to do to meet this guy? I, like, is he? Is he got a beard? <laughs> Maybe. Okay. Maybe. Like you know him. I know this guy. Yeah, you've seen him before. He's I've a phantom him. to me. I'm from Canada. I've so. seen him. I've seen him. The legend uh, of the Moonski. Well, I'll tell you what. Those donations start going up. We'll get Uncle Moon on here quick. Live. You That's make an Uncle Moon request with a donation. I will assure you, we will start to start to get Uncle Moon as a regular feature. But before we close the show today, we got. We got Mark again. We love Mark England. He's he's a he's a homie. Watch him and he is we got another watch your mouth with Mark England. Dude. Watch your mouth, bitches. Watch your mouth, fool. Yeah, I'll I'll figure it out. Alright, what we got here. Hey everybody. Mark England with him lifted here. I'm out on a stroll, walking along, breathing the fresh air, listening to the birds, taking in some sunshine. It's good for me. I got a question, too. Have you ever seen a morbidly obese, super fat, 90-year-old person? Yeah, me either. <laughs> Watch your mouth, bitches. Watch your mouth, too yeah, I'll, I'll figure it out. Too good, dude. I, he's he's got a point. I think farm life is the hack to longevity, man. Yeah. In a lot of ways, I I've shaken the hand of an eighty-five-year-old farmer, and it just it's a different kind of crushing. It's a different kind of old man strength. It's like something with both the grip and the the use it and keep it aspect of using your hands your entire life and still chopping no, nothing to make you feel like a like a soft 35 year old to have an 85 year old farm <laughs> hand just crush Christ. your fucking hand right just to put you in your place and remind you that we out that that sometimes you gotta learn sometimes how to cook a steak you gotta you're fucking 10 ply brother <laughs> mark had a point and i think i had a point today dave you you did you did. There this is no disrespect in, out there. There's I'll no disrespect that, to anybody that is overweight, fat, or obese. You are loved. You are cared for. Uh, the reason I'm bringing this up is because I care about you. I want people to eat clean food. I want people to know that there are other options. You don't have to participate in these centralized systems. You can simply vote with your dollars. That's the fastest way to vote people out is to vote with your dollars. Mm. And if you can make a conscious decision around one thing, buy yourself some real food, man food industry is mm. causing a huge problem exactly. they have they have co-opted this fat phobic narrative to keep people uh in the same system because it's profitable because as you remember health and and, and profits are, are at odds <laughs> oh, and i don't nice. give a shit about the odds that's why we're out here having this show thank you to every listener thank you mike schwartz oh, like buddy. the schwartz so producer welcome. extraordinaire no oh, buddy I like that. It's just so right. Your contribution. Like your contribution is is undeniable. You're too fat. 
<laughs> and without you, me and Dave would just be having a conversation uh, by ourselves, not getting fucking this out. Boring. And, and Dave would have no reason to even sit through these conversations because I've, I trigger him most of the time. Well, we had so to now that I have him up, on a podcast, I at know? least keep him in one place for long enough to to, to trigger him. That's good. And Ed, so thank you, Dave. Thank you, guys. For continuing to stay in the pocket, for doing this with me. I couldn't imagine doing this with anybody else, this crew right here in this room. And everybody who's listening, thank you so much. We look forward to reading your name and saying thank you to you on the air for week number five. Serious fun. Peace.